Coming up this Saturday morning on Gesundheit with Jacobus, different topics are on the table for discussion, including why blood tests don't save more lives, omega-3 intake can lower our mortality risk, and an update on the latest opioid crisis. I invite you to tune in, learn, and participate. If anything else tickles your interest, bring it to my attention as well. It's Gesundheit with Jacobus. Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Uh, what a special day it is. Good morning to all of you. I much appreciate you tuning in today. I'm looking forward to all the topics we have to discuss on this program where we discuss, as you very well know, health, healing, and healthy lifestyles. We're not here to diagnose, treat, or cure. That's not the purpose. The purpose has always been education, information, hopefully a little entertainment. The experts usually talk about whatever they can, uh, books they have written, passions they have, the work they do or they've done for a long time, or a change of work that they're doing in a field that I think is very interesting. Well, we have quite a few topics. Um, I... It is the twentieth anniversary, the fiftieth anniversary of the moon landing, which is something has always intrigued me, and I've always been fascinated with that whole um, that whole endeavor from NASA and Gemini project and even the space shuttle. It just amazes me uh, what we're able to do and the people are involved. Uh, I I want to touch on that a little bit later in the show, and I hope that you will join me for that as well. Uh, let me lay out what the thoughts were for me today to talk about. And of course, it helps if I find my notes. And uh, <laughs> let me see here. So the the topics I thought we'll discuss is what I also mentioned in the promo that you just heard before the show. One is called uh, Why Blood Tests Don't Save More Lives. And that was an article that was published in the Life Extension uh, magazine uh, just recently, why blood tests don't save more lives. Now, I, lives, I, I have had my issues with blood testing over the years that I've learned that some of these ranges that are given are confusing to people. They don't know what it means, but at the same time, we are being told that something is normal when in reality uh, the symptoms indicate that you are having a problem. So is there something wrong with the range or is there something wrong with you? And so something like that I would like to discuss with you. There was also an interesting article about the the fact that omega-3, there was testing done that omega-3 fish oil can actually improve from mortality. And then I would like to talk with you about a report that just was released about the opioid crisis. Uh, there was an article in the Bozeman Chronicle 
but I dug a little deeper and found some other interesting articles that elaborate on the uh, the findings that you were able to read in the Boston Chronicle that was called uh, this last uh, July 18, Thursday. It's called Stunning Scale. Data shows flood of opioids across the United States, many of them generics. And I, uh, it is just amazing when I started counting and calculating and put some numbers together, put my pencil to the paper, so to say, to figure out some numbers, you will be astounded by the uh, devastating effect of opioids, but also by the sheer number of how many pills does that mean the average American is getting, or it actually there is even one for Montana, how many we have had. Now, interesting thing with this is that the opioid uh, numbers only range from 2006 through 2012, so a, a seven-year period. Uh, somehow, the judge who ordered the release of these numbers said that 2013 and 14 were not allowed to be released at this point. So obviously we are already seven years later and we all have heard that this whole opioid crisis debacle, uh, not a debacle, it is definitely a crisis, let me call it that way. Now some political parties may say it's a fabricated crisis and that's fine, we, uh, we know. But at the same time, let's just look at numbers doing this show and give you some insights so that we that we have a better understanding about the vastness and and for those of you who have to take opioids for one reason or the other i totally understand and i sympathize um i also i also want to say is that when your use for opioids or needs for, needs for opioids means that you have to meet somebody in a dark alley and exchange some pills for some cash, then we really should talk because that means that you're it's out of control and that maybe there are some other options and solutions out there for you where you can find some uh, a, a happy medium, so to say. So these are some of the uh, topics I would like to discuss. Hopefully, you're doing well. It is a beautiful drive coming to the studio. It's a stark blue sky, and it looks like we're going to have a wonderful day in the neighborhood, so to say, and wherever your neighborhood is. Let's talk about the blood testing. <clears throat> it was not uh, maybe exactly what I had expected that the article was going to be about, but it was very, very interesting. There is a, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, William Falloon, and William Falloon is the editor of the, um, I think he's the editor of the magazine Life Extension Foundation, and he brought some very interesting things to my attention about this, about what we need to test for, because let me just say it out straight. I think that generic testing that is being done by physicians doing a annual physical sadly does not include some very important testing that would give us a much better insight in potential dangers for heart health or for other symptoms that are just simply not tested. We do know that a vast majority of people, 
is suffering from thyroid problems. Uh, thyroid hormones are just not part of a regular panel. We see that there is a uh, there is a, a very clear understanding about the lipids, the fats that are being tested for cholesterol because the medical society is making cholesterol the number one indicator for potential heart disease, cardiovascular problems, strokes, and heart attacks. But years have of research have already been published about the fact that cholesterol is not the enemy here. Cholesterol is our friend. Our liver makes cholesterol, so it is important for us to utilize and respect the fact that our liver makes cholesterol, and we should not use medication to shut the cholesterol production up. We need to make sure that cholesterol is used well and that we understand what these things mean. Now, this article is called Why Blood Tests Are Not Saving More Lives, and I go through it, and you will learn some new things that you may have never heard about, and I think it will be interesting if you have pen and paper, write some things down and um, and learn. Back in the 1950s, the sci- a scientist uncovered the link between LDL cholesterol and atherosclerosis, or hardening of the arteries. Critics argued that heart attacks occurred in some people who did not have excess LDL. What was not so, critics argued that heart attacks occurred in some people who did not have excess LDL. So when your doctor looks at your blood test and says, your LDL is high, then um, we it's elevated, so we got to lower the LDL. There are different players. And, and just to give you some numbers here, just to let you know, you have your HDL, which we consider good cholesterol, high-density lipoprotein, HDL, high-density lipoprotein. We call it a good cholesterol. It is the cholesterol that is important for heart health, and it is also important for our immune system. The levels that I feel are important to notice is that you are if your level is between 35 and 45 or lower than 35 than 45 you are in the danger zone that is not good you got to bring it up there are different ways to bring it up that's another story now when you talk about your ldl i have said on this program and for those of you who haven't heard ldl in my opinion is very important because it indicates our body going to work for us our system going to work for us and in any time our body is suffering from either an injury, an infection, or inflammation. If you are inflamed, if you have just been subject to an injury, if you have an infection, uh, let's say you work out and you hurt your muscles, trust me, your body will produce more LDL cholesterol simply to patch the holes, to patch the damage, just like a scab on your skin is protecting you from further infections after you have cut yourself. So the scab will be there and will stay there until the stem cells inside our body are going in to fix the damage that was created by the cut. And so once that is done, the scab literally falls off and you were all amazed that our body is completely healed. 
So yes, we don't, may not like the looks of a scab, but that is what it does. And LDL cholesterol will be produced by the liver to put a to put a scab inside the blood vessel where damage is, where leakage is, where there's inflammation, and it needs to protect that area so that stem cells can go in and fix it. Once it is fixed, the LDL cholesterol literally will lift off, lift up, and will be removed through the lymphatic system. It is not the body's goal to hold on to LDL cholesterol after it has done its job. So if you have elevated LDL, you need to find out why do I have elevated LDL? Can you pinpoint it? Is your body going through something? Have you just done uh, tremendous work in the ba- in the backyard and strained your back and you're walking kind of bent over? Or did you hurt yourself in an injury? Did you fall down, break your neck? Who knows? Whatever it is, you have damage, your LDL will go up. So still, when we look at numbers for LDL, my suggestion is that if you are less than 70, that will be awesome. Okay, but this is not after you take medication. This is LDL naturally occurring before you take any medication. If your LDL is between 70 and 90, I would say that is a pretty good level. It's pretty good. If you are above 100, I would say that probably indicates you have either an infection, an inflammation, or an injury. So the, the three eyes, infection, inflammation, injury, in my opinion, are directly related to LDL production. Um, and then, of course, we have the triglycerides. And the triglycerides, for me, are very important because it indicates the amount of sugars that we eat, carbohydrates, fruits, vegetables, pastas, cookies, cakes, chips, salsa, some cheese, nuts, uh, some nuts, um, Anything that is a, a sugar, a carbohydrate, that is not per se a fat or a protein, is usually a, a some kind of a sugar. So when we eat those, they go through the digestive tract. A bunch of them will end up in the bloodstream, and that means that the blood cells have to do something with it. So they take it to the cells. And the cells say, well, uh, I got enough sugar, so I don't want any more. And it literally shuts the door. And the blood cell goes, well, what am I going to do with it? I, I'm not going to go back to the liver and carry all the sugar in my backpack. So it literally wants to dump it in the bloodstream. Now, there are fat cells always present in the bloodstream floating around. And they say, you know what? Give it to us. We'll hold on to the sugar. Because if Jacobus tomorrow is going to skip some meals or he is uh, he is in a hurry and he has no time to eat or he, he's going crazy because he thinks he's gaining too much weight, he doesn't eat. So then we'll simply release that sugar back into the bloodstream and then the cells can absorb it at that point because they have burned through their sugar, they need some. So that's very interesting, but if we do if we eat the same routine every day that we do all the time, then obviously we never have that extra need for that release of sugar from the fat cells in the bloodstream. Keep in mind therefore that when we eat more sugars and carbohydrates than we need, they get stored in fat cells and that over time sugar and fat can create acidity, inflammation in the bloodstream. So some people have chronic 
inflammation, can't figure it out. One of the many things that you often hear is you got you to gotta stop eating sugars. Now, many people don't understand what sugars are. And as I just said, anything that is a carbohydrate, anything that is a, uh, that is a fruit or a vegetable or anything like that, by all means, it, is a, uh, uh, it eventually will turn into a sugar. So, Tritalist writes, measure the amount of sugar in the bloodstream that is not accepted by the cells and is therefore stored in temporarily in fat cells that float in the bloodstream. And the higher that number, the more sugar you contain. Now, let's talk about this. You have, my suggestion is that if you have less than 70 on your triglycerides, that is great. If you are between 70 and 80, that is good. Now, if you get over 85, and this goes back to my days when I would talk to Ellie Cullen on my radio show, a phlebotomist who had worked with blood for more than 45 years, she would say, if you go over 85, you are increasing your risk for developing either hypoglycemia or uh, diabetes. Now, Keep in mind, over 85 on triglycerides, you increase your risk for diabetes and hyperglycemia. Now, let's take a look at what a test says as a reference range. It says zero, zero. How can you be less than zero? So if you're less than zero, you're low. Well, you show me somebody who can be less than zero. I've never seen it. But they say zero to 150. What kind of range is that? And then there are some tests today that say more like 30 to 200. So there are people with a triglyceride of 195 who are being told they're in the normal range. That is absolutely pathetic. These people are having a problem and they know it. But you go to the doctor and the doctor says everything is in the normal range. Well, what does it mean? Come on, doc. Look at it. It's at the high end of your normal. You better go take a look at it. So for many people, they get very confusing and very conflicting reports when they go to the doctor to get their blood tested, especially for the cholesterol. So many doctors do not even care so much about the triglycerides, but they look at the LDL, they look at the HDL, and they look at the ratio, which is understandable. But if you're... If you're HDL is over 85, it's excellent. So I said earlier, 35 to 45 is dangerous. In my opinion, on the HDL, if you get over 60, you're safe. And if you can get your HDL, your good cholesterol over 84, 85, you're just never going to die. So that's great. So if you can get that, and again, there are several ways to get to that point, but we need to test more things. For example, we need to test for the LDL, small or large particles. We call it particle size. It is very important that we understand the particle size of bad cholesterol, LDL. Now, simple question, what do you think is more dangerous in the bloodstream, small particles or large particles? I think most of you will say, small particles because they don't seem so dangerous well the problem is small particle size on ldl cholesterol is dangerous because they can stick to any crevice any 
chip, any bump that is in the bloodstream, and they have a certain stickiness where the large particles bounce around like beach balls. They just don't, the, the larger, they don't get stuck anywhere. So small particle size, if you have a small particle size of 100, you may be at a higher risk of cardiovascular problems than if you have 135 or 140 on your LDL of large particle size. Anyway, when we come back, I'm going to talk more about this article about the blood testing, and I do hope you stay with me all the way through. We have, we're going to have a good time. We'll be right back. There's so much to discuss every, each and every time. And I thought let's 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 talk about these blood tests and words. Now I got a quick question: Could you please describe the function of polyphenols and bioflavonoids, modus operandi, in maintaining capillary function and permeability? Research has indicated that using them in conjunction with D-ribose, which is a specific sugar, nitric oxide, and a diet rich in omega three and six has helped many people get off heart medications that have deleterious effects. I hope you got that. So he wants to he or she wants to know about the function of polyphenols and bioflavonoids. Now polyphenols are antioxidants and those are found in many fruits and vegetables. There are over 500 polyphenols and antioxidants we have fat soluble antioxidants and we have uh, water-soluble antioxidants that have specific effects in supporting cell structure, cell function, and especially when something that's called a free radical is destroying the the healthy cell. It's stealing from the healthy cell in order for the antioxidant for the uh, um, free radical to stay alive, to survive. So free radicals are very much in there and uh, they're, they're important for us to have in our body all the time so the more antioxidants we have in our body the more we have support we have an army to fight off infection inflammation uh, um, viruses fungi uh, bacteria etc so that's polyphenols now the bioflavonoids bioflavonoids we find uh, just to imagine them they are found in uh, peppers, but the, the the easiest ones to find are in the peel of an orange or a grapefruit, a lemon or a lime. So citrus fruits, they that is that bitter part of the uh, the peel, and when you eat that, you go like, you know, that's a it's kind of bitter. But what happens is the bioflavonoids they help vitamin C to function better so when you look about through the bioflavonoids you talk about things such as quercetin that starts with the q q u e r c e t i n quercetin there is also rutin there is hesperidin those are just some of the bioflavonoids now what these do not only do they support vitamin c they also have their own function again as an antioxidant but what they do as far as permeability of the blood vessels does blood vessels capillaries and the arteries they help with elasticity in the blood vessel and the capillaries and the arteries so when people go on blood thinners for example 
the blood thinners make the blood very liquid. Is that good or not good? In my opinion, it's not good. Uh, there are other ways to make the blood not runny, but to make the blood, to give it a certain viscosity that is essential for it to function. So if that's the case, the um, uh, we got to make sure that we keep that elasticity moving because every time we move fingers, we bring our arms up and down, or we, we, we bend at the elbow, or we bend down our knees, and we are stretching the blood vessels in that area of the body. So over time, overuse, you, you know, take a rubber band and pull it, pull it, pull it, pull it, pull it. Everything is fine. Now you lay it out in the sun for three hours. You pick it up. You try to stretch it. What happens is it just snaps. So that's not good. So we got to keep in mind that we you keep in a rubber band for three years in your drawer in a, in a, in a little jar it is still elastic. So we got to keep it in a place and in a condition where it can stay elastic. And that's the same with the blood vessels. We have a responsibility to our own blood vessels and arteries and capillaries to keep them healthy. Now, uh, the uh, bioflavonoids do just that. They help with um, when when blood vessels or capillaries or arteries start to crack because they haven't been nourished correctly, they are getting overused, uh, they're getting old, right? Then, then and, and then blood thinners start thinning that even more and they they find the cracks and you start bleeding when you when you bruise you start bruising when you hit your hand or your knee you get these big black bruises on your leg so that's not good um, the the bioflavonoids will help to reduce that rutin r-u-t-i-n r-u-t-i-n rutin is the one that is used most of the time 500 milligram once a day if necessary twice a day will start to take care of this uh, very quickly now so we go on so we have the polyphenols the antioxidants and we have the bioflavonoids in maintaining capillary function and permeability so i already explained that the permeability is such that uh, if you nourish it so and 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 one of the antioxidants i would call vitamin e because vitamin e from edward is very important of on the inside of the blood vessel where vitamin C has shown with the bioflavonoids to work more on the outside of the blood vessel. So that is good. Now, research has indicated that using them in conjunction with D-ribose, nitric oxide, and a diet rich in omega-3 and 6 has helped many people get off heart medications that heart medications that have deleterious effects. Well, I totally agree. So if we keep the blood vessels permeable if we use the right kind of fats to keep the blood flow viscous in a right way not liquid not runny liquid um, but a certain viscosity that the blood needs then you're going to find out that yes your heart is functioning just fine i mean if you have water running through your heart that is not as good as when you actually have nutrients running through your heart that keep it lubricated that keep it healthy and strong so yes i agree with the texter that yes you can get a heart medication but let's face it if you have a diet rich in omega-3 and 6 so fish 
and some nuts and seeds, not too many omega-6s, but then you will find out that it helps you get off heart medication. Um, that is absolutely a given. And sadly enough, most uh, medical professionals are not really looking into this kind of research. So they simply look at, is your blood pressure high? Is your cholesterol out of whack? Um, is there anything else? There is an arrhythmia. Then we just put you on medication. There is never look at, there is just not enough research done on why we are dealing with these issues. There should be, the heart is in the center of our body. And we simply need to know if the heart is getting the support it needs. And not only that, but if the heart keeps sending the blood forward or backwards throughout the system, are the other systems in proper order so that they can actually work with the blood and not pollute it on the way back? So for me, it is very important, as the texter is telling me, that with the antioxidants, high antioxidants, fruits, vegetables, primarily. If you cannot do that enough, then I would definitely get some antioxidant powders like acai, a mangosteen, goji, noni, vitamin C, vitamin E, alpha lipoic acid. Uh, there is so much out there. Like I said, there is there is there's a lot of antioxidants, polyphenols, more than 500. So there is different ways where you can help your body to be healthier the 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 uh the um the bioflavonoids obviously with the vitamin c and then the d-ribose it's one of the essential sugars to give you energy and also helps the body recuperate from strenuous strenuous work or exercise the nitric oxide is necessary to push the push the energy to all the extremities. So you don't want to have bad circulation in your hands and your fingers and feet and in other parts of your body where you have extremities like your brain. But for some people, it's the penis or the vagina. Those are all extremities. Then there needs to be plenty of circulation. So it is important that we have the nitric oxide, omega-3 and 6. And yes, absolutely, it will be able to get you over the medication. So Having said all that, I hope that answers your question, Texter. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. So, having said all that, uh, there is plenty to discuss. Let me see here. As I mentioned, that we have these articles, why blood tests are not saving more lives. There was another article that talks about omega-3, the increase of omega-3 in our diets that will help to stave off mortality and we have this very important topic, the update on the opioid crisis because of reports that have been released by the DEA and the, uh, the, the, yeah, the, the government, in a way, has released these documents, but it only describes the opioid use and distribution of pills from 2006 through 2012. Let's see, another text. You mentioned that prescription blood thinners have negative effects. Are there better natural alternatives to maintain optimal blood viscosity? The best alternative is omega-3, and I would do the liquid omega-3. I would do the fat, the omega-3 fish. That is, so anytime you use omega-3, you are talking about two fats. 
two fats, and uh, the two fats are omega are EPA and uh, DHA, and EPA and DHA are very. Um, they both have anti-inflammatory effects in our body. Anti-inflammatory. How well? However, the EPA has more anti-inflammatory effect on heart, cholesterol, depression, and joints. So high EPA is more uh, heart, cholesterol, depression, and joints, where the DHA, the higher DHA, has more anti-inflammatory effects on the brain. So anxiety, memory, vision, um, yeah, recall, that kind of stuff. Also the nervous tissue, so Alzheimer's, uh, Lou Gehrig's, MS, neuropathy, um, Parkinson's, all these are damage done to the nerves so dha helps to recuperate from that and help to heal the nerve tissue the myelin sheath it is also the essential fat dha fish oil fat is very essential for uh breast health breast health in both men and women and for prostate so if you have prostate related issues the dha may be the better way to go now every time you buy fish you either have EPA and so high EPA and some DHA or you have the cod liver oil, for example, which is higher in the DHA and lesser EPA. So whatever, you have to look at the label and you have to see uh, what you have. Now, some people travel a lot. I highly recommend uh, the capsules. And uh, if you do the if you are home and you uh, you can mix it in something, I would definitely do the liquid. For, uh, there are about 14 capsules of fish oil in one tablespoon of the fat. 14 capsules in uh, in about a tablespoon, give or take, right? So not many people will take it. They take one or two capsules a day and they're wondering why their, their health is not improving. This could be one of the reasons. So uh, what was the question again? Uh, yeah, so blood thinners negative effects are the better natural alternatives to maintain optimal blood viscosity. Research has shown that really, I can't recall right now where the research came from, but I do know that there was a uh, Dr. Joseph Maroon, who uh, is the neuroscientist, neuro, neurosurgeon from the Pittsburgh Steelers. He has written a book about omega-3 fats, and in that book, he talks about the research that actually indicates that omega-3 Omega-3 is restoring the optimal viscosity of blood. Therefore, that's the way to go. Now, funny thing is this, that when you have, when you take medication for blood, so your blood is too thick. So the blood, the, the, the doctor says, you got to go on blood thinners. Now, first of all, I would say drink more water because water will really help. People who don't drink enough water, they, their blood usually runs a little thicker. So if they say go on blood thinners, then they will give you a warning that says do not mix blood thinners with any herb that starts with a G. Ginkgo biloba, garlic, ginger, gota cola, ginseng. These are all uh, herbs that start with the letter G. Now, also it says on the list, omega-3, do not take fish oil when you do blood thinners. Now, think about that. What does it indicate? It means that if you were to take those herbs or that fish oil, you would actually have a double whammy because it does the same thing. 
So why don't you focus on taking garlic capsules and taking fish oil? And I would throw in there vitamin C and vitamin E, but all the benefits that they have in the rest of the body, they also help you to keep the blood flow regular. And that to me is very, very important. So, um, here we go. Now, the article, we finally get to it, I think. Um, uh, why blood tests are not saving more lives. So back in the 1950s, a scientist uncovered the link between LDL cholesterol and atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. Critics argued that heart attacks occurred in some people who did not have excess LDL. And I've, I explained that in the first half hour. What was not known in the early years is that there are different types of LDL particles, the small and the large. If your LDL surface contains, so the actual molecule LDL, if it contains high levels of a protein called apolipoprotein B, so lipoprotein, L-I-P-O, and then protein, and then the the, abri- the words in front of it, the part of the word in front of it is APO, APO, lipoprotein B. It is more likely to damage arterial walls and set the stage for atherosclerosis. In some populations, those who maintain low lifetime APO lipoprotein B levels have an approximately 90%, 90% decreased risk of coronary artery disease. What impresses us is evidence showing regression of arterial plaque when the apolipoprotein B blood levels are reduced. Despite intensive educational efforts, apolipoprotein B blood tests are not routinely incorporated into primary care medicine. The tragic result is a failure to prevent heart attacks, strokes, and other occlusive arterial diseases. Isn't that interesting? So here we're testing simply for LDL, HDL, and triglycerides, maybe some very low-density lipoprotein, VLDL, but nobody is checking for the trigger that actually activates the hardening of the arteries, which is on the outside, the surface of the LDL molecule. It's called apolipoprotein B. I already want to tell you that I contacted TriMet Services yesterday, which is an independent uh, uh, blood drawing uh, office here in Bozeman. They are all located on Edelweiss Drive that is just past Perkins Restaurant in that professional area, Edelweiss Drive. Then when you look at that, they, they actually say we can provide the apolipoprotein B as well as the apolipoprotein A and they can also call for the uh, particle size if that is something that interests you, the particle size on your cholesterol. Uh, We know today that atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries, is a result of a myriad of risk factors. These include elevated glucose, insulin, homocysteine, triglycerides, and inflammation along with hormone imbalances. So yes, there are more factors that play a role. But now look at this. Glucose is something we should have under control ourselves. 
insulin, same thing. We, unless you have type 1 diabetes, but as far as insulin production is, is, is concerned, we have 100% control over the need and the production of insulin. Homocysteine, well, that has to do with, that is a protein, homocysteine, that is involved in the breakdown of proteins into the other protein, methionine. If you do not have the correct enzymes, and the enzymes here is really interesting, there are actually three B vitamins. It is vitamin B6, it is vitamin B12, and it is the B vitamin folic acid. So increasing if your homocysteine levels are elevated, definitely when they're elevated over 10, you need to start taking some B6, B12, and folic acid and you will start seeing a decline in that number. You want to get the number somewhere between 5 and 8, uh, 5 and 8. That that would be recommended. Um, triglycerides, we discussed it earlier, the amount of sugar stored in the bloodstream that is uh, stored in the fat cells floating in the bloodstream instead of being absorbed by the cells. And then, of course, inflammation. Well, we talked about inflammation, which has to do with the increase in LDL. Along with hormone imbalances, well, who knows? That's what they say, and I, I believe it. Uh, so what it says next is heart attack incidents peaked in the year 1968, accounting for 37% of all deaths in the United States. The epidemic was alarming, as it often targeted. Now, don't forget... 1958-1958-1959, it was that great scientist Ansel Keys who told the world that eating saturated fats such as red meat and butter was very dangerous for your health and that we should go on low-fat, no-fat diets and that we should, uh, that we should indulge in margarine and uh, canola oil, safflower oil, uh, all that crap. So that is nine years past that time. So when everybody was adjusting diet, guess what? 37% of all deaths in the United States were related to heart attacks. We did not lower the amount of heart attack. The epidemic was alarming, as it often targeted otherwise healthy people at the peak of their careers. Advances in prevention and treatment led to marked reductions in sudden death and improved survival in those stricken. It is still today responsible, heart, heart disease is still responsible for 25% of American death today compared to 37% in 1968. So the, it is therefore important that we do blood testing. Now, I hear the music, that means we have hit the end of the first hour. My goodness, it goes fast. So please, I hope you stay with us all the way till 11 because as we continue our topics and talk about the apolipoprotein B and the, uh, the omega-3 as well as the opioid crisis, you will have a full three hours. We'll be right back. So we were just talking about uh, this test, this blood test called apolipoprotein B. There is an apolipoprotein A, there is an apolipoprotein B. The apolipoprotein B is found on the outside surface of the LDL cholesterol. And that, uh, so when this is on, so the LDL is what we call the bad cholesterol. It's, uh, it contains, <coughs> excuse me, if your LDL surface contains high levels of a protein called apolipoprotein B, 
it is more likely to damage arterial walls and set the stage for atherosclerosis. Now, as I mentioned, it is not part of a regular blood test, but I did check with uh, Amy Fleeman from the TriMet Services, and TriMet Services is an independent lab. You can just walk in and get it done any any day of the week. They usually have special discounts, uh, part of the health fair, on Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday mornings. They're located at 233 Edelweiss Drive, 233 Edelweiss Drive, which is behind Perkins Restaurant in Bozeman, in that commercial of that professional area, I should say, and they're in Unit 10B. The telephone number, if you need to set up an appointment for something, it would be 585-3301. It is the only lab that we have left in Bozeman where you can go in for a blood test that is not connected with Bozeman Health Group or the Bozeman Deaconess Hospital. So you can go in and get tests done and they send it then to the Billings Clinic or the Mayo Clinic or wherever it needs to go. So the uh, the APO-B, so the uh, APO-Pro, lipoprotein B test will cost you $75. The APO-Lipoprotein A1 and the B panel, so if you take both the APO, uh, the APO-Lipoprotein A1 and the APO-Lipoprotein B panel together, it will be $135. If you want to know what your particle size is, your particle size or your LDL, so you're worried about that, then that will be $149. So that is money, but if you have an answer, if you have an answer, if you have these problems, if you have this protein on the surface of your LDL cholesterol, wouldn't you want to know it? Let's say your LDL, as I mentioned earlier, if you were between 70 and 90, that is in a good range. If you go over 100, then you obviously have increased your in, you have an increased level of either an injury, an infection, or an inflammation when your LDL goes over 100. So, as I mentioned, if you have an LDL of 100 that whereby your either your apo lipoprotein b is elevated or your small particle size your your particle size of the ldl is very small you are in a lot more danger than when you have a, a particle size that is large particle size on your ldl because they will not stick they just bounce around in your bloodstream and they will not stick. So small particle size, you want to know if you have it so you can you can do something about it and fix it. So that is what they have over at TriMet Services. And I can tell you more about those tests if you need to know. So apolipoprotein B is linked to the initiation and propagation of atherosclerosis, also called calcification of the arteries, hardening of the arteries. High levels, high levels of apolipoprotein B penetrate the inner arterial wall, which is the endothelium, and then they set the stage for blockage of blood flow. Those whose blood test shows elevated cholesterol and apolipoprotein B are especially at risk. To put it in perspective, higher apolipoprotein B levels have been associated with 60% increase in coronary heart disease when the total cholesterol and the HDL are in a safer range. So let's say the safe range, I would say, is above 60 on the HDL. 
If you can go over 84, that will be excellent. But let's say safe is 60 and your total cholesterol, well, 30 years ago, 300 was safe. Today, the doctors are cramming you into a small window of uh, less than 200. So if they say, well, your cholesterol is in a good range, less than 200, and your HDL is okay, that means it's above 60, then if your apolipoprotein B is still elevated, then you are at a 60% increased risk of cardiovascular problems or coronary heart disease. In people with higher levels of cholesterol and apolipoprotein B, along with low HDL, there is a 160% increased incidence of coronary artery disease or heart attacks or even strokes. So isn't that something? So you have high levels of cholesterol, high level of apolipoprotein B, inflammatory, and low HDL. Your good cholesterol is not balancing anything out. Elevated apolipoprotein B is a more reliable marker for cardiovascular disease than LDL, HDL, and total cholesterol. Very important. I have also said before that Ellie Cullen, when she was on the show, the phlebotomist who knows all there is to know about blood, she says in her book, researchers have said that homocysteine levels, homocysteine levels, when there are, well, homocysteine levels are 40 times more accurate in predicting a cardiovascular event than cholesterol will ever be. Very powerful stuff. A myriad of studies associates walnut consumption, the walnut, with reduced risk of coronary artery heart disease. A study assessing a range of cardiovascular risk markers in response to a diet containing about 1.5 ounces of walnuts daily for eight weeks compared to a typical Western diet. Two benefits of walnut consumption in this trial were a modest non-HDL cholesterol reduction and a more pronounced 5.5% reduction in apolipoprotein B. So in a way, some reduction. So if you want to eat nuts that are good for your heart, look into walnuts. These findings led the researchers to conclude that the observation of reduced cardiovascular events in people who eat walnuts may be explained in part by reduced non-HDL cholesterol, by reduced non-HDL cholesterol and apolipoprotein B. A follow-up analysis looked at previous studies that evaluated consumption of tree nuts and found reductions in apolipoprotein B in type 2 diabetics who consumed higher amounts of tree nuts. So, yes, this is the question also that uh, the, the person who texted me earlier was wondering if you increase your omega-3 and your omega-6s, that will be better for cardiovascular health. And that is true. So the analysis looked at previous studies that evaluated consumption of tree nuts, and it found there were reductions in apolipoprotein B in type 2 diabetics who did consume higher amounts of tree nuts. Another thing they recommend in this article about the blood test, it says avoid sugar. Now, an investigation looked at associations of apolipoprotein B blood levels 
with education, lifestyle factors, and dietary patterns. The intake of sucrose and foods containing added sugar, such as pastries, sweets, jam, and sugar-sweetened beverages, correlated with higher apolipoprotein B levels. Very interesting. This study identified other unhealthy factors, such as smoking, obesity, low physical activity, again, with unfavorable lipoprotein profiles. A one-year study of overweight, healthy men, overweight but healthy men, found a reduction in apolipoprotein B, but not in LDL cholesterol in response to exercise training. This led the authors of the study to postulate that exercise might have LDL might make that exercise might make LDL less atherogenic by reducing apolipoprotein B. So, if you are overweight, but otherwise you're healthy, according to the doctor, you start exercising, your apolipoprotein B will go down. So that's another good one. Then you look at something that I'm constantly breaking. Sorry. Importance of sleep. A Chinese study looked at the relationship of sleep duration and apolipoprotein B blood levels using data from over for almost 7,400 subjects, 7,400 subjects. The participants were divided into three categories according to sleep duration, less than six hours, seven to eight hours, and more than nine hours. The studies found that short sleep duration, which was less than six hours in women, was was associated with a 1.75-fold greater odds of elevated apolipoprotein B compared to women who got 7 to 8 hours of sleep per night. Longer sleep duration in men was, was associated with decreased apolipoprotein B. The study authors concluded sleep hygiene management, sleep hygiene management, could serve to treat and prevent cardiovascular diseases by altering unfavorable apolipoprotein profile. Interesting. Then we talk about thyroid hormones, and a pet peeve of mine because I know a lot of people suffer from thyroid-related problems, but the blood tests are not correct and should be adjusted to give us a much quicker indication if somebody has a problem. So the next point, thyroid hormones and lipoproteins. People with insufficient thyroid hormones, so low thyroid, they can have elevated cholesterol, LDL, triglycerides, and apolipoprotein B. In some cases, people are prescribed statin drugs to lower cholesterol when the appropriate use of a thyroid hormone medication would actually normalize their lipid profile. Isn't that something? So going on thyroid medication or finding out if what is going on is either a lack of nutrients, specifically iodine and tyrosine, which are the main food for the thyroid, or if the thyroid problem has been caused by an autoimmunity. 
Hashimoto's, an increase in antibodies. So antibodies attacking the thyroid, they wipe out the thyroid energy. The thyroid is fighting off these antibodies, has no energy left to produce your T4 hormone. So if that is the case, then let's fix the antibody problem. Or if you don't have an antibody problem on your thyroid, but you're simply not eating enough iodine, getting enough iodine and tyrosine, your thyroid simply doesn't have the nutrients to produce T4. So is there a way that we can fix this either with medication or not? Can we fix the thyroid, thereby naturally lowering your cholesterol? A reduction in lipid and lipoprotein levels after thyroid hormone replacement in our study, in our study cohort, resulted in a less atherogenic profile. So, reduction in lipid and lipoprotein levels after thyroid hormone replacement resulted in a less atherogenic profile. So, fix the thyroid correctly. First of all, diagnose it correctly. Then fix it correctly. And you'll see your apolipoprotein B go down, which is good. Then they talk about the effects of fish oil on apolipoprotein B. The effects of fish oil, and here we go, we talk about the EPA fat and the DHA fat. They're talking here about fish oil, 1,800 milligrams of EPA, 1,200 milligrams of DHA per day. Were studied on 10 healthy males for four weeks. So I would say that's roughly a tablespoon of liquid. If you do a regular omega-3 capsule, that would correlate to about 1,800. Let's see. That would be about 10 capsules a day. 10 capsules a day. Okay? So I would say do the tablespoon. Take it straight. So the effects of fish oil were studied on 10 healthy males for four weeks. The result was about a 30% reduction, 30% reduction in production of, excuse me, I'll read that again. The result was about a 30% reduction in production of apolipoprotein B and reductions in other vascular risk factors like triglycerides and VLDL. So why do you think the triglycerides come down? The triglycerides, again, is the amount of sugars that we consume in the body that go into the bloodstream that have been rejected by our cells because the cell goes, I have already enough sugar here. So now it is the blood, the red blood cell dumps it in the bloodstream. It is absorbed by fat cells that float in your bloodstream that say, hey, Jacobus is not going to eat tomorrow, or maybe if he doesn't eat tomorrow, we'll release it back in the bloodstream to give energy to the cell. But if I eat the same food every day, every day, all the time, eat the same amounts, eat my amounts of sugars and fats and proteins, then that triglyceride level is never going to change. So what we need to do is fish oil. Fish oil burns... 60 times more slowly in our body than sugar. Take a fireplace, put in logs. Logs will burn a long time. You can walk away from the fireplace and get some work done around the house. Paper is also made from a tree. 
just like logs. Paper in the fireplace, you cannot go anywhere because the paper burns very quickly. So the same with sugar. Sugar is paper. It burns very quickly, gives you quick energy, but it doesn't last. Logs are your proteins and your fats. And just like we have different woods, like cherry and maple and walnut and pine and oak, whatever you use, we have different proteins. We got chicken and fish and beans and beef, and we have uh, other proteins that we can eat. Uh, Even in some grains, we have proteins like amaranth is high in protein and quinoa. So you can eat different kinds of protein, just like you have different logs in the fireplace that give you different heat levels, that give you certain sustainability and durability. So when you talk about a 30% reduction in the production of apolipoprotein B, and reductions in other vascular risk factors like triglycerides, so that goes your sugar, goes down because we're taking fat. So if we have enough fat in the body, the craving for paper in the fireplace is going down. So that's perfect. Note that this EPA DHA dose of 3,000 milligrams a day is much higher than many fish oil studies that sometimes use less than 1,000 per day. And I totally agree. I've always told people do a tablespoon a day and you are nourishing yourself. Acute risk of excess apolipoprotein B. A a review of factors that underlie acute heart attack revealed a startling finding. So factors that underlie acute heart attack revealed a startling finding. Among those with the greatest risk were current smokers and people with elevated blood ratios of apolipoprotein B to apolipoprotein A1. Apolipoprotein A1 is the major protein component of your beneficial good cholesterol or HDL. So when the ratio is off, elevated blood ratios of apolipoprotein B to apolipoprotein A1. This comprehensive analysis identified other known causes of heart attack, such as hypertension and diabetes. It then listed protective factors. What can protect you from all this? This included daily consumption of fruit and vegetables, exercise, and modest consumption of alcohol. Study participants, so only one 16-ounce glass of wine instead of five. Study participants, I'm just kidding, sorry. Study participants who were non-diabetic, study participants who were non-diabetic, who did not smoke, and who had no lipid abnormalities, including high blood ratio of apolipoprotein B to apolipoprotein A, showed large reductions in acute heart attack risk. Now, the other thing, and then I want to finish this, a separate study found that the cruciferous vegetable extract indole-3-carbonyl reduces apolipoprotein B secretion from liver cells as much as 56%. 56%. This may be a mechanism by which plant foods like broccoli reduce cardiovascular risk. Folks, you can buy indole-3-carbonyl at the Gesundheit Nutrition Center Take one or two capsules a day. It also brings your estrogens down. So, very important stuff. Stay put. I will be right back.
think is so interesting to to look at blood testing and and i have said before the blood testing is very important the uh, this this article that appeared in live extension foundation in june of this year uh, about why blood tests do not extend life do not save more lives is because the most blood tests do not give us enough specifics it doesn't give a man his testosterone levels, his estradiol levels, his DHEA levels. It doesn't give a woman her total estrogen levels, her progesterone levels, her DHEA levels. It doesn't talk about the heart, about the homocysteine. It doesn't talk about the apolipoprotein B protein that is indeed on the surface of LDL. If it's elevated, you increase your risk for cardiovascular problems. If it is low, then you see immediately a reduction in the risk for cardiovascular problems. So um, there are other tests that just bother me, but I want to get real quick to some of the other options that we have. And one of them is there are medications out that can actually help the reduction of apolipoprotein B. So the thing that I mentioned just before we went in the break was this specific extract that is found in cruciferous vegetables. It's called uh, I3C, that it stands for indole, I-N-D-O-L-E, I-N-D-O-L-E, dash three, dash carbonyl, C-A-R-B-I-N-O-L. So indole three carbonyl, which you can buy in a supplement form, uh, will reduce apolipoprotein B secretion from the liver cells as much as 56%. That is huge. That is more than some of the other ones that we saw, even the fish oil. So you do tablespoon of fish oil, you take the uh, indole-3-carbonyl, your apolipoprotein B should be pretty low which means your risk for cardiovascular problems stroke heart attacks etc should be very very low and be dramatically reduced and as i mentioned uh, locally the if you cannot go to your doctor and get it tested if your doctor says i don't do that or if you do with your doctor and the insurance will pay for it which i think they should because it is a huge indicator as a prevention medicine if you talk about prevention medicine that is the apo 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 so apo lipoprotein b test if you go to trimed services here in bozeman independent lab that test will be 75 dollars. it will be sent to the mayo clinic and you get it back in a few days if you do the combination of apo lipoprotein a1 which is indicator protein in the hdl the good cholesterol which is important and the b panel to the apolipoprotein b if you take the combination it's 135 dollars if you want to know if your if your uh, your particles of the ldl cholesterol the particle size of of all your cholesterol is large or small and again ldl small particles are very dangerous they get very sticky and they can really create atherosclerosis then i that test would be 149 dollars in my opinion doing the apo1 and b a1 and b plus the particle size, you're going to spend almost $300, but that is a lot cheaper than going to the hospital after a heart attack. Just knowing where you're at. And then 
increase exercise, increase fish oil, start taking indole-3-carbinol. That is supplement-wise. If you have the if you have the strength to lower your sugar intake, that will be very important. Uh, if you uh, quit smoking, uh, get enough sleep. Those are important. And if you can get your thyroid hormones in check, uh, according to what they really should be, not what the blood test says, that would be very helpful. So, if heart disease is on your mind, then these are some options that you have. Prescription drugs that lower cholesterol and the LDL also reduce blood levels of apolipoprotein B, a potentially beneficial mechanism of statin drugs, and the new PCSK-9 inhibitors, PCSK-9 inhibitors, like the medicine Repatha, R-E-P-A-T-H-A, R-E-P-A-T-H-A, is that they can lower LDL down to around 30 milligram per deciliter. Now, normal target goals for LDL are below 7,200. So as I mentioned, less than 70 is great. If you can get between 70 and 90, that is good. You go over 100, you may have an increased amount of injury, inflammation, or infection. Now, some people tolerate statin drugs, while others encounter unbearable side effects like aches and pains and fatigue and just just horrible. We are intrigued by the potential of drugs like Repatha to potentially reverse atherosclerosis by driving lipoproteins down to the levels of those seen in healthy teenagers. The problem is that even at a reduced price, reduced price of $5,900 a year, Repatha is cost prohibitive and seldom covered by insurance. There you go. So I would do the apolipoprotein B test uh, and get it done and over with. Spend the $300 once to know where you're at and do it again if you decide to make some changes in your diet and lifestyle, in your dietary supplement choices, etc. Let me see. That is pretty much it, um, I would say. Now, so... Things that I have problems with is I feel that the thyroid testing, the hormones thyroid are not tested correctly. The the, the, the TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone, doesn't have the proper range. I truly feel that after research and talking to people over the years, that if your TSH is between 0.3 and 2.0, that is the good normal range. If you go above 2.0, so if your pituitary gland has to produce more TSH than than normal, that means that your thyroid is weak. It cannot produce thyroid hormone T4. So TSH stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. So it helps the thyroid, it stimulates the thyroid to produce the T4. Very important. But... When you go over 2.0, there is a problem. The doctor test says anywhere from 0.34 to about 5. Some say 4.75, some say 5.75. I've seen them as high as 6.75. So many people are probably in that range between 2 and 5, and they're being told the thyroid is normal, but they suffer from low thyroid problems. 
then there is no test, normal test. If you go to an endocrinologist and the endocrinologist just tests your TSH or your T4 and is not testing your antibodies to find out if the cause of your thyroid is actually um, is actually antibody attack. So antibodies attacking the thyroid, you are you are peeing up the wrong uh, bark, right? Now, vitamin D3, I've mentioned that also. Vitamin D3, the normal range on a blood test says 30 to 100. 30 to 100. I feel that it should be, that you should be above 60, above 60, and preferably get your vitamin D3 level between 75 and 100. The thing is, and this is totally anecdotal, some of you may be listening and say, hey, who are you to make those kind of comments? But I'm just telling you, anecdotally, every time I talk to somebody who has depression, who says they have cancer or who are suffering from some kind of a chronic disease, and I ask them for a vitamin D3 level, it's usually less than 35. So a blood test from the doctor's office will say that your normal range is 30 to 100. Can you imagine how many people are scheduled between 30 and 35 who are being told they're normal, but meanwhile they're suffering either from a cancer or from uh, fatigue or they are depressed or they are dealing with bone loss or they have problems with sugar balancing or they have some kind of a chronic disease. So my suggestion is get a vitamin D3 test. It's about 50 bucks, $55 a TriMet. TriMet Services, call them, 585-3301, 585-3301 if you need to. But if you want to walk in and get it tested Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning from 8 to noon, they just walk in and get the test done. Vitamin D3, very, very, very important test. One of the most important tests I tell people to do. Triglycerides, we discussed, hemoglobin A1C. It tests if you have diabetes. The best level is 5.6 or less. That's where you want to be, 5.6. Most doctors will tell people that if you go over 6, you are pre-diabetic, and if you go over 6.5, you have diabetes. Too many people are in the A1C over 6.5 and are barely treated. They don't even start medication until you're in your 7 almost. I can't say that for every doctor, but I have heard of people who say they're in 7, 8, 9 on the hemoglobin A1C. Hemoglobin A1C measures blood over a three-month period. How much sugar is in the red blood cell over a three-month period? Why is that? Because a red blood cell only lives for three months. So if it contains sugar, and after three months it dies, and meanwhile you started making big changes in your, in your diet, you started taking more proteins and more fats and more fresh vegetables, and you eliminated added sugar out of your diet, you will see that A1C come down. And you want to be 5.6 or less. The lower the better. We also talk a little bit about homocysteine already, um, uh, testosterone, estradiol, DHEA. The, the ranges on men for testosterone is just crazy. They tell men that the testosterone should be 235 all the way to 1100. 
what kind of range is that? It's ridiculous. Um, the, the a man total testosterone preferably should be between seven hundred and nine hundred, and uh, the estradiol, when that is the case, should be less than thirty. So um, you want to be you want to be at a number. So if your total testosterone is for a man is three hundred which is a third of 900, then I would say your estradiol should be around 10, a third of 30. So uh, anyway, we can talk about that later. It's all very interesting. Um, let's let's talk about some other stuff that I want to discuss in this hour because after this hour, we only have 10 minutes left. Or excuse me, what I'm saying, one hour left, not 10 minutes, one minute left. And there was a, a little article that says that omega-3 intake and lower risk of mortality during 16 years of follow-up. So a study reported in the Journal of Internal Medicine, Journal of Internal Medicine, reveals a lower risk of, by the way, I should give my, my phone number, right? You all want to be able to call me. The telephone number here in the studio, AM1450 KMMS, AM1340 KPRK. Gesundheit with Jacobus, it is 406-522-8255, 522-TALK. If you like to text me, you can do so as well. I'll get to it as the show progresses and I have time to look at it. That is 599-2519, A study reported in the Journal of Internal Medicine reveals a lower risk of dying from any cause during a 16-year follow-up period among men and women who had a high intake of fish or omega-3 fatty acids. The investigation included, listen to the study, 200 and almost 241,000 men, 241,000 men and 180,000 women who were National Institutes of Health and American Association of Retired Persons, so NIH, AARP, and Rollies, in this diet and health study between 1995 and 1996. That's when they enrolled. Questionnaires concerning lifestyle and diet were completed by the participants upon enrollment. Through 2011, through 2011, there was a 16-year study, 54,000 230 deaths occurred among the men, 30,882 deaths occurred amongst the women. For men whose intake of omega-3 fatty acids placed them amongst the highest 20%, so you take all those 240,000 men, and then by the questionnaire you find out who takes the most amount of omega-3 or fish. You put those in 0 to 100, they're in the top 20 so, for men whose intake of omega-3 fatty acids placed them among the highest 20%, the risk of mortality from any cause was 11% lower than the risk experienced by men whose intake was amongst the lowest 20%. Similarly, women who were among the top 20% of omega-3 consumers had a 10% lower risk than the bottom 20 Now, you may say, that's not much. But this is over a large group of people. We're talking 200, what am I talking? 400 and 420,000 people. That's a lot of people. Now, the editor's note here, it says, when the risk of death from specific diseases was analyzed, 
men who had the highest intake of omega-3, they experienced a 15%. So not just the top 20, we're talking about the highest amount. They had a 15% lower risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. And for women in the top group, the risk was 18% lower. Greater omega-3 fatty acid intake was significantly associated with a lower risk of mortality due to respiratory disease and Alzheimer's disease in men and women and with a lower risk of chronic liver disease and cancer in men. So to me, this is very important that omega-3 as a strong anti-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory whereby the EPA is more beneficial for joints, heart, cholesterol, and potentially depression, it's very important that you take a higher EPA, whereas the DHA fat in omega-3, fish specifically, is more beneficial for the brain as far as anxiety and panic attacks, as far as memory is concerned, and as far as vision is concerned, because the vision is connected to, to the brain stem, to the brain, And then also DHA is good for breast health. So women with fatty tissue in the breast that is lumping, that is hard, or potential risk of developing cancers, high DHA should help you fight that. Same with men with prostate-related issues. The fat in the prostate uh, is close to the fat in DHA. And we have the myelin sheath, which is the protective layer around all our nerves, are benefiting from DHA omega-3. So anybody dealing with MS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Lou Gehrig's, as well as uh, neuropathy, would benefit from fish oil high in omega-3, high in DHA fat. So that is that is what we have, and uh, goodness gracious, there is so much to say. Um, we're coming close to the end of this hour, and I thought, you know what, we maybe we can talk for a moment about these this uh, moon landing. Um, I think it's really interesting. By the way, actually, I got I got two messages, so maybe we should. Uh, we should check the messages. Thank you, folks, uh, for tuning in today to the program. It says over here in the text message, is one slice of bacon a day bad for the body? I've heard that having those fats that are in bacon are good to jumpstart the body in the morning. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it all depends on um, uh, who you talk to. And protein-wise, Pork has seven grams of protein in one ounce. Uh, one ounce of pork is seven grams of protein. So that is a very rich protein source. As far as the, the, the pig itself is concerned, it depends what you call a slice of bacon. I mean, I've seen slices of bacon that you go, whoa, that's a whole meal right there. Other ones are a little thinner. I think that um, the... The fat in bacon, um, is it the best? I don't think it is the best, but it is still a fat that you can take on a, 
on a regular basis, on a limited regular basis. And it also depends how long you bake, you fry the bacon. Uh, is it more on the crispy side or is it more on the on the soft side? Uh, obviously, when you fry bacon, you see what's left in the pan. There is quite a bit of grease in there. So I've heard that some uh, having those fats on bacon are good to jumpstart the body in the morning. Uh, yes, I, I think that for some people that works really well. If you do bacon and you start having issues where you really don't like the way you feel, then I would cut back on the bacon and see if that feeling goes away. If not, then I would quit taking it all together. The other thing with bacon is I would like to know what is fed to the pig is it a bunch of crap and junk is the fed is the pig uh, organically raised is it uh, been given uh, right foods uh, is it uh, does it have too many hormones in it etc so to me those are important there are some great companies here in Bozeman where you can get pork that is actually uh, very well raised the nitrates and naturally occurring i think the nitrites uh, they're naturally occurring in the meat and they should not have any negative effect. But if you start adding stuff to the pig, then it may not be the best fat for you to try in the morning to jumpstart your day. So hopefully that answers the question. Uh, the other one is, uh, the other question is, what about pickle juice? Does pickle juice clean the arteries, especially the sour type? Boy, that's a good question. I cannot give you an answer on that. I would assume it does. I think that uh, pickle juice starts to help digestion. And when you help digestion in the stomach, if you just do the pickle juice, not combine it with water, then that acidity will help to break down the food and liquefy it in the stomach. Now the food is better broken down before it gets into the blood. In the bloodstream, it's easier on the liver. The liver doesn't have to work so hard. And then uh, what will happen is that you will uh, therefore have less junk going into the bloodstream. And I would say that is healthier. So give it a try. Do a blood test at some point to get it tested and go from there. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. What a special day it is. It is July 20th, 2019. It is uh, exactly 50 years ago that man landed on the moon. Uh, a very special moment. And uh, there are some things that we can talk about that's kind of fun. Fun and special. One thing I was watching uh, around midnight, I was watching uh, some documentaries for interviews with Neil Armstrong. And I remember myself, I'm 59 right now, so I was about nine. And we were on vacation in the Netherlands and we did something. My parents did something, and you may have that over here too. It's kind of exchanging of uh, homes. So there was a it was a family somewhere else in the country and they wanted to live for a few weeks, three weeks or so in our house. And then we moved into their house. And so nobody spent any money. We pretty much exchanged houses for a few weeks. And uh, anyway, I remember that my sister woke me up and... Uh, I forgot what time it was. Maybe it was around 11 at night or maybe one in the morning. Who knows? And she said, and my sister was three years older than me. And she said, man landed on the moon. They landed on the moon. And I, I look out the window and I look at if I could see it. You know, <laughs> what do you know? 
and I wasn't following, but I wasn't following it, the whole story. But when you were a little bit older, people were just glued to the, uh, do the TV. Now, the, um, there is some really interesting uh, stuff that is to know. And I'm, I went on a Dutch, uh, the Dutch news, and they're talking about all the people who have been to the moon. And I, uh, I thought, you know, what, what have they done since? And I was watching last night a, an interview on 60 Minutes with Neil Armstrong. He was a very private man who just didn't give any interviews. And uh, he was really a humble man. They also said, you know, you, you're really a hero. And he, he said, you know, I, I, he said there was 140,000 people who have worked on this whole project to get us to the moon. And he said, so I am nothing special. I just happen to be the first one coming down the ladder. And they, he said, and, and that's what he asked them. They said, why did you say it's one small step for men but a giant leap for mankind. Uh, what what made you say that? And he said, well, I realized that it was really just a very small step for me to get off the ladder and just um, land on the moon, step on the moon, but as a, a, a giant leap for mankind. He said, I was thinking about those 140,000 people who have worked so hard, some of them have lost their life, to get to the point where they were able to land on the moon. So you look at all the space travel, all the rockets that have been produced, and all the people who have been working behind the scenes to get all this done. He said it is it is phenomenal, and I felt it was really what mankind has been able to produce in, in only eight years' time after John F. Kennedy asked this country to put somebody on the moon. That, he said, is totally impressive. Now, he himself left NASA in 1971. So this was in 1969. He left NASA in 1991. Um, He he had said, I don't want to go into space anymore. Instead, he became a teacher, a professor in engineering, I think, in the University of Cincinnati. He was also on the committee that was uh, the committee at NASA that was doing the research on the accidents that had happened with Apollo 13 and the Space Challenger, uh, the Space Shuttle Challenger. Uh, about his moon flight, I am translating this quickly from Dutch. Um, he said about the, 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 the travel to the moon, Neil Armstrong said, we were so busy trying to make the mission a success then we were then we were worried that we were not worrying about the historic impact of being the first people landing on the moon. He said we were just there was so many things we had to check all the time, and you know you 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 shoot up there with a rocket and you're going with so much speed there's only so much time you have. And the other thing he was talking about, uh, if for those of you and I'm sure many of you remember that whole landing, um, he actually didn't take the route they had told him to take. And they asked him what would happen because when he landed, they only had about uh, 40, um, they had very little fuel left in the lunar module. And they said, you know, when you follow that, it, it still gives me the chills when I when I hear the communication between Houston and the uh, the, the lunar module, the LEM, the, the Eagle, that they're going like, you only have 60 seconds of fuel left. Uh, you only have, 30 seconds of fuel left and he was still not on the ground and 
it was unbelievable. But what he said when they had all the coordinates figured out when they got to the moon, he was actually going to land on the edge of a crater. And he said that crater was about as big as a football stadium. And he said, and the sides were covered with big rocks. He said, there was no way I could land the module right there because we probably wouldn't get away or would damage the, the module. And that whole module, by the way, for the, you know, you look at the pictures, that thing was literally made of aluminum foil and a whole lot of tape. That's what they said. A whole lot of duct tape and other stuff. That thing was literally like a Coke can that was just landing on the moon. It was very light. And those guys were trying to get out of there as quickly as possible uh, because the way that this uh, unit was made. And uh, it had to be very light. And so he said, um, I had to land it and we had to figure the space. And Neil Armstrong, one of the reasons why he was picked as the commander of the whole Apollo 11 was because he was a cool and collected guy who never stressed about anything. He was not scared of anything. Uh, it was not that he was like a, like a, like a, um, um, how you call it, you know, a tough guy in other ways. It was just that everything he did, he did very thorough and calculated, but therefore with all the prep that he did, he didn't have that anxiety that some people would have under this kind of pressure. I mean, if you hear Houston tell you, you only got 30 seconds of fuel left, you know, then you better land that thing. And so they just had enough fuel to get back off the ground, off the moon uh, surface, and just shoot themselves into speed. And just to think about that, that the that the uh, when you release back from the moon, that you somehow are able to coordinate with your speed back with the Apollo Eleven itself, with the. Uh, with the with the capsule that Michael Collins was flying, that they were able to coordinate that somehow somehow in that space, it simply is masterful. It is amazing that people were able to do that. So uh, as far as Buzz Aldrin was concerned, Buzz, his real name is Edwin Aldrin, but he had Buzz as a surname, and apparently his year and a half older sister Faye was not able to say brother. To him, she would say buzzer to him. So she had a speech impediment, or she didn't know how to say it. So instead of saying my brother, it was my buzzer. And so that's why it was abbreviated as buzz. After Apollo 11, uh, for a short time, he went into the Air Force, American Air Force, but he retired from that in 1972. Uh, there was a period in which he struggled with depression and alcoholism. He was, uh, um, he was his therapist suggested that he do something completely different so he became a car salesman after an arrest because of disorderly conduct he finally stopped completely with drinking aldrin uh, became a fighter for aldrin became a fighter for the um let me see for a a a, a space travel to mars in 2002 he was one more time he he made the news i'm trust trying to translate here he in 2002 he again came in the news because he hit a man who complained who who claimed that all the moon landings were fake and that it was just one big conspiracy so he got really upset about it and personally 
um, I think that it's absolutely impossible that it is a fake. And I'll tell you why. If you think how many people were in the Houston Control Center, you cannot tell me that all these people were able to stay silent for the rest of their lives, that nobody would leak out information and say, you know, this was the biggest crock. We were sitting in somebody's garage and we were just making all these pictures and noises and it never happened. So that is uh, that is interesting. Anyway, so that is what I wanted to say about it. And that is over here. There is uh, something that talks about different facts that you may not know about the moon landing. And I thought, oh, boy, why is it so difficult to find this? Let's see what we can find. Well, you know what? I'm going to get my caller on. Good morning, caller. Thanks for joining the program today. What is your name? How can we help you, please? This is Joe. Hey, Joe. Now that you mentioned and now people know officially that you were uh, from the Netherlands, I want to tell you something that happened in the afternoon in the White House on Thursday. Yeah. The greatest patriotic speech that I heard about our flag was from a fellow from the Netherlands with the prime minister standing there and, of course, Trump and all the other people. Yeah. But I'm going to talk to you about a five-minute speech. The people from the Netherlands, this flag was bought by an individual, yeah. of course, from the Netherlands. He bought the flag years ago. It, it was one of the ships that landed on Normandy. It was the original flag. The original flag, flag. of this ship. Yes. He bought it. It's all shredded and everything, but he encased it and kept it. And so for the anniversary of Normandy, uh, he made a request, and the prime minister and they came to the White House. But the speech he gave is how much the people, let's say in Holland, Netherlands, yeah. you know, the people there yeah. respect our flag and, and are more patriotic than some of the Americans that every time are saying bad things of what veterans gave their life to do. This man in a five-minute speech, nobody could believe what he said. So I want to let you know that the people from your land appreciate, and they don't live here, yeah. our flag yeah. more than some Americans that I know. That's what I want to tell you. You know, that's you interesting, Joe. By the way, did you know what the man paid for the flag? I really don't know. 440,000 euros. Oh, you know the story then. Yeah, I do know the story. And oh, but you did, did you hear the speech? I missed it. I will find it. I will listen to it. That's a speech that no American even gave, like this man did, an appreciation of the sacrifice that all these soldiers made and what America stands for and the freedoms that are in Europe and everybody that blessed this country. Their freedoms are from that flag. Yes. But I want you to get get that speech. Anyway, I don't want to hold you up. (laughs) Thank you, I'll talk to you. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. By the way, this gentleman, so he bought the flag, he found the flag, and he bought it from somebody for 440,000 euros, which is about $475,000, almost $500,000. And uh, he said that the flag belonged to go back to the United States. Where He said that's where it belongs, in a museum. And it literally, it is the first flag, or the, the, the original flag that was used to storm the beaches of Normandy. 
during D-Day. And he, um, uh, he was hoping, he had expressed that he was hoping that it was so important for the American, uh, for the American president to come to this, con- to come to the Netherlands to pick it up himself and to kind of show uh, the respect for what it had meant and 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 appreciation, et cetera, et cetera. So, but then it just didn't fit in, in uh, President Trump's schedule. So he said, when the prime minister is going to America, I'm, they requested that he would also come to the, uh, the United States and bring the flag. And so there was a special ceremony. I know that part. And so now the flag is back in the United States. And it is impressive. I mean, the, the colors are fading and there is rips and there is it's shredded in certain sections, especially away from where the uh, where the stars are. So more on the edge of the stripes. And uh, but it is beautiful. It is an absolute, absolute um, beauty. Good morning, caller. Thanks for joining the program today. What's your name, please? How can we help you? Linda, and Hi, Linda. I have a question. Would you repeat the things that you should be taking for, I, I was trying to write, and, and my husband walked in the room and, and interrupted, and I was trying to write down the things that you said should, should be taking, you know, um, for high cholesterol. Oh, for for the high cholesterol, as far as... Um because well, I, I, ha- I can't always forget mix one up, but I have I have the lower. You have the low HDL. No, the low, I have I have the bad the whatever the bad one is LDL. The but, LDL, yeah. But, so I have real high LDLs, and it's genetic in my family. I mean, my cholesterol is like over three hundred and something, and I can't remember the ratio. I have it written down on a piece of paper. Where's okay, okay, let's first give you the ratios. So the HDL, if you're less than forty five. You're in a danger zone. Okay. If you are above 60, you're safe. Okay. And if you can get over 85, you that's great. You okay. have a pretty good immune system and your heart is good. Okay. The LDL is not per se bad cholesterol. LDL is extremely important to the body because anytime the body is suffering from an injury, an infection, or inflammation, the three eyes, inform- injury, infection, inflammation, LDL production from the liver will go up. It's trying to help the body to heal. Okay. Less than 70 is great. Okay. S- 70 to 90 is good. Above 100, it indicates you have either an injury or an infection or inflammation okay that will come down naturally okay now the important thing to know with ldl is that we do a test on the particle size the how big are the molecules of low of bad cholesterol of ldl cholesterol so you can either have small particles or large particles this which one do you think are more dangerous for you I think you said the small ones when I was listening earlier. Correct, because they get sticky and they crawl into all the little crevices and holes and imperfections that we have inside the blood vessels, arteries, or capillaries. So they build up and they are a problem. So finding out your particle size is important. Now, the other thing that they have discovered is something called APO, APO, lipoprotein 
B, the B from boy. And when that protein that is made by the liver is on the surface of LDL cholesterol and it is elevated above anything that's normal, so we all have it, but if it is elevated, you increase your risk for cardiovascular problems very much, like 60%. And then depending on the rest of your health, uh, that could go up as high as 160%. Now, you say that your cholesterol, uh, oh, and then the triglycerides. Triglycerides is the amount of sugar that is not accepted by the blood cells, but it is stored in your fat cells that float in the bloodstream. Um, the triglycerides less than 70 is great. 70 to 80 is good. And if you get over 85, you are increasing your risk for hypoglycemia and or diabetes too. So those are important to know. So triglycerides, the level that the doctor gives you are ridiculous. They're like 30 to 200, which is pathetic. So a lot of people are running around in, as diabetics or in hyperglycemia, and they don't even know they have a problem, but they all suffer from consequences and symptoms that are not normal. Um, so what can we do to lower it? Well, there are different ways to lower it. Uh, if 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 you're talking about... HDL, well, we increase HDL with resistance exercises. Resistance, not just treadmill or running. Resistance exercises, using weights, using resistance from the body. Push-ups, sit-ups, squats, uh, leg presses, uh, you know, things of that nature. Use your muscles. So that is important. The other one that brings it up is something called uh, niacin or B3. Now, niacin for many people, is not pleasant because it actually can give you a flush, but it will help to bring your uh, your HDL up. Um, another one, it will be omega-3 fish oil, and I would look into a tablespoon or so a day. Uh, garlic is very good for cholesterol to help regulate it. But what I would say, uh, Linda, is that you need to find out what your numbers are. And there are a lot of people who have what is called familial hypercholesterolemia, which is what you're talking about. It is genetic. Uh, so familial means it runs in the family. Hyper is high and cholesterolemia is your cholesterol. So it runs in the family. But many people with familial hypercholesterolemia are extremely healthy. They, they live a long life. They don't have cancer. They don't have heart disease. Uh, they don't really get many infections. If they do have a, a wound, they heal up within days. But other people may take weeks to heal. They have a pretty good immune system. So cholesterol is not a good indicator. And 30 years ago, if you had a cholesterol of 300, everything was kosher. Uh, when they did a test on people between 300 and 600 cholesterol, they found out that these people were actually very healthy, especially when their HDL was in a good shape. So by putting these people on statin drugs, they actually dropped them down from about 400 to 225. These people started developing cancer and heart disease, as well as more infections. And they were tired. They didn't feel good. So there is a lot to say about the... Um, about cholesterol so fish oil very important uh, garlic is very important uh, to lower the 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 apolipoprotein b there is a remedy called indole 3 carbonyl i3c 
And uh, that we can lower it as low as 56%. So I, I got to run. There's a break coming up. Uh, does that answer your question? It does. Thank you so very much. Yeah, Appreciate you're welcome, it. Linda. Thanks All for right. listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks. Uh, stay put. We will be right back. There's indeed so much on the agenda today. I have I really figured that I would need about an hour to an hour and a half to talk about the opioid crisis that has come out. So I'm going to try to do it in the next segment, this last segment, and try to get it all figured out and explained. Because we're dealing with opioids issues, and uh, there was a report revealed this week. It was released, and there were people who are really against it that, it, <laughs> well, guess what? Guess who was against it? It was the uh, the pharmaceutical drug companies. The, there was an article released uh, this week, and several agencies picked it up. Um, the Washington Post, which is, you know, some people like it, some people don't, but they have been fighting to get this information about the opioid crisis that is going on right now. And... I tell you what, it is huge. It is huge what has been happening with the opioid. So the DEA, for the first time ever, a database maintained by the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, that tracks the path of every single pain pill sold in the United States from manufacturers and distributors to pharmacies in every town and city is being made public. Can you believe that? That's amazing. So for the first time ever, a database maintained by the Drug Enforcement Administration, which tracks the path of every single pain pill sold in the United States, from manufacturers and distributors, all the way to pharmacies in every town and city is being made public. The data was released as part of the largest civil action in U.S. history, and it provides an unprecedented look at the surge of legal pain pills that fueled the prescription opioid epidemic, which resulted in nearly 100,000 deaths from 2006 through 2012. So that's it in a nutshell. So they have only released the, the judge, Dan, let me see, what was his name exactly? Uh, let's see here. I have his number, name and number. Okay, here we go. So the, the judge, the judge's name was Dan, Dan Polster. It was U.S. District Judge Dan Polster, P-O-L-S-T-E-R. He removed, he bought, that was on July 15 of this year, 2019, so beginning of the week, removed the protective order for part of the ARCOS database. And ARCOS, A-R-C-O-S, is the, the uh, mean, stands for the Automation of Reports and Consolidated Order System. The Automation of Reports and Consolidated Order System. The data provides statistical insights that help pinpoint the origins and the spread of the opioid epidemic. An epidemic that thousands of communities across the country argue was both sparked and inflamed by opioid manufacturers, distributors, 
and pharmacies. And so that is important. Now, the ones that, um, if you look at some of this information, and I am um, going back to this page, no? Yeah. So the biggest takeaways from the article are this. The national database has never been released publicly. So this is the first time. The database is based on previously unreleased company data supplied to the uh, to the DAA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and reveals what each company knew about the number of pills it was shipping and dispensing year by year, town by town. It is a virtual roadmap to the opioid epidemic. The drug companies along with the DEA and the Justice Department, have fought furiously against the public release of the database, which is the automation of reports and consolidated order system, ARCOS. Number two, the companies flooded the nation with pills as the opioid epidemic raged. A Washington Post analysis of the database shows that America's largest drug companies distributed, hold on to your head here, 76 billion, 76 billion oxycodone and hydrocodone pain pills across the country between 2006 and 2012 as the nation's deadliest drug epidemic spun out of control. About two dozen companies are being sued in federal court in Cleveland by nearly 2,000 cities, towns, and counties alleging that they conspired to flood the nation with opioids. The companies, in turn, have blamed the epidemic on overprescribing by doctors and pharmacies and on consumers or customers who abused the drugs. The companies say they were working to supply the needs of patients with legitimate prescription, desperate for pain relief. So, which one do you believe? If you listen to the sentence, if... If a child wants a cookie and you tell the child, sorry, you got to wait till we have dinner and you stand firm on your decision, that child will not get a cookie. If the child says, I want a cookie, and you say, here, have a cookie. Trust me, they come back in 10 minutes. Now I want an ice cream. So they, who is the one who is in charge here? You don't always give because somebody says, I need this pill. But even that is a big lie because you'll find out in this article that the amount of pills being distributed to areas that absolutely were flooded with pills, you know that it was eventually distributed in the black market. So just six companies, six companies alone distributed 75% of all the pills. Six companies, 75% of all the pills. And these were oxycodone, hydrocodone during this period. McKesson, MC. K-E-S-S-O-N, M-C-K-E-S-S-O-N, McKesson Corporation, Walgreens, I don't have to spell that, Cardinal Health, Amerisource Bergen, B-E-R-G-E-N, Amerisource Bergen, CVS, and Walmart, according to an analysis of the database by the Washington Post again. These companies manufactured, there were three companies, three companies that manufactured about 88% of the opioids. Companies I have never heard about. Spec GX, Spec SPEC GX, a subsidiary of Melanchrot, 
Activist Pharma and Par Pharmaceutical, which is a subsidiary of Endo Pharmaceuticals. Now, let's give you some numbers. And I use the calculator for this one. The volume of the pills handled by the companies climbed as the epidemic surged. It increased 51% from 8.4 billion in 2006 to 12.6 billion in 2012. 12.6 billion in 2012. So they said when you added a lot, it was like 76 billion in seven years. By contrast, doses of doses of morphine, which is a well-known treatment for severe pain, averaged, now we all know morphine, right? Averaged slightly more than 500 million a year during the same period. So 8.4 billion in 2006, 500 million morphine. 12.6 billion in 2012, 500 million morphine. Now let's take a look what that is. 12.6 billion, that is, you write down 12.6 and then you add eight zeros to it, okay? In one year alone. So 12.6 billion, if you divide that by 330 million Americans, that includes the old people and the teenagers and the children, 330 million Americans, that comes down to 38 pills per person. 38 pills per person. So if you know that your baby is not taking oxycodone, somebody has her 38. Now, if you take 12.6 billion and you divide it by just 12 months, so this is just for one year. You divide it by 12 months, you're talking about 1 billion 50,000. No, one, excuse me, 1 billion 50 million. 1 billion 50 million pills per month. If you divide 12.6 billion by 52 weeks, that is 242 million 307,692 per week pills. 242 million pills per week. If you divide it by days, 365 days, you're talking about 34,520,548 pills per day. Can you imagine that? 34 million pills per day boy if i do that kind of sales then uh, <laughs> i may just do the show full time the number of pills that the company sold during the seven-year time frame are staggering far exceeding what had been previously disclosed in limited court filings and news stories so these numbers have never come out the opioid epidemic began with prescription pills spawned increased heroin use and then resulted in the current fentanyl crisis, which added more than 67,000 deaths, uh, 67,000 to the death toll from 2013 to 2017. Number five, things that you can take out of this DEA pill report. The states that received the highest concentration of pills per person per year were West Virginia, with 66.5 per person per year, West Virginia, 66.5 per person per year, Kentucky, 
63.3, South Carolina 58, Tennessee with 57.7, and Nevada with 54.7. West Virginia also had the highest opioid death rate from 2006 through 2012. Now, rural areas with the greatest number of pills shipped per person per year were Norton, West Virginia, Norton, uh, Virginia with 306. So this is the highest per person per year shipped 306 per person. That is almost a pill per day on the average again. Now, interestingly, we have uh, some numbers actually from Montana. I decided to check Montana. Montana from 2006 through 2012 there were 245 million, million with the M, 472,116 prescription pain pills supplied to Montana in a seven-year time span. 245,472,116 prescription pain pills. You divide that by seven, that is 35 million 67,445 per year 35 million per year in Montana and if you divide that by a million people per year right a million people that is 35 per person per year everybody in 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 Montana so we are very close to that 38 per person and it is because that is what they call kind of an an an, an oxy belt uh they call it uh, that that starts more in virginia and then comes down to florida and then moves west but uh that is still that's a lot of pills 35 opioid pills oxycodone oxycontin pills um from all these pills, well, McKesson has been always number one. 105 million of those 245 million uh, supplied to Montana in those seven years. 105 million came from McKesson Corporation. The top five distributors, McKesson, McKesson then Cardinal, then Walmart. Walmart, 25 million in those seven years. Walgreen, 17 million. And uh, let's see... The pharmacies, which were the pharmacies that sold the most pills in Montana that between 2006 and 2007, Walgreen com- Company in Kalispell, Walgreen in Kalispell, 4,118,460 pills. The next one was, so 4,118,000. The next one was Montana CVS Pharmacy in Butte, 3,075,000. Walgreen Company in Missoula, 3,9600. Walmart Pharmacy in Missoula, almost 3 million. Walmart in Billings, 2.9 million. So there's a lot of pills. This is all, of course, over um, 2006 to 2012. The volumes of the pills handled by the companies climbed as the epidemic surged. And we already said that. So it increased 51% from 2006, 8.4 billion pills per year, to 2000 through 2012, 12.6 billion per year. 
is a lot of a lot of pills. I tell you that. Um, comparing county level maps of opioid overdose death, and so country level maps of opioid overdose death and pill shipments reveal a virtual opioid belt of more than 90 counties stretching southwest from Webster County, West Virginia, through Southern Virginia and ending in Monroe County, Kentucky. So those were the highest. And let's see if I can give you some more information. There was one article in the New York Times that came out. My daughter just sent this to me. That was July 19. That was yesterday. It said over here there was a town of 2,831 people. 2,831 people. They were sent 3,271 pill bottles. It's impossible. So what is happening with all these pills that are just being sent to people? Um, the takeaways, I talked about that. Let's see. The fentanyl. Oh, what is this? Oh, that's something else. Okay, so the opioid pills, I tell you that the amount, the 10 companies along with about a dozen others are now being sued in federal court in Cleveland by nearly 2,000 cities, towns, and counties alleging that they conspired to flood the nation with opioids. The companies, in turn, have blamed the epidemic on overprescribing by doctors and pharmacies and on customers who abused the drugs. The companies say they were working to supply the needs for the patients. The database reveals what each company knew about the number of pills it was shipping and dispensing and precisely when they were aware of those volumes year by year, town by town. In case after case, the companies allowed the drugs to reach the streets of communities, large and small, despite persistent red flags that those pills were being sold in apparent violation of federal law and diverted to the black market according to the lawsuits. So keep in mind that this whole system was set in place that once they started producing the fentanyl, excuse me, the, the, the oxycodone and the oxycontin, Purdue Pharma actually said that oxycontin was less addictive than any of the other pain pills on the market. And they were wrong. A lot of people became super addicted to these pills and it has caused suicides and deaths in general. And uh, people are just broke and became violent because they needed the pills. They were just druggies. So when you look at that uh, number, then what the, the law became that as a drug company distributing these pills, you had to know exactly how many pills went where. And then you would have to keep track of that so that if there was a, a, an, an organization or a store that would order more than what seemed reasonable for the area, that would be a red flag. And so then it was the job of the drug company to literally go to that area and say, what's going on over here? How come you guys order so many pills? There is no reason for that many pills. And so this is where they went wrong. They simply would not follow up. Sometimes they check, but in general, they wouldn't do that. So the DEA would sue these companies. 
and then say, you didn't follow our orders, so we need to penalize you. So you look at how much these pills cost, and then a large company like that, after they sell billions of pills, they make billions of dollars. And again, I don't care if somebody makes money, that's not the issue. But if you do it over the backs of millions of people, then I do have a problem with that, especially nothing really benefited these people except that they didn't have an uh, 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 that they were able to function for the time being if you have inflammation or an injury you need to go through rehab get a physical therapist work with your doctor uh, if necessary get the surgery do your own work make sure you stay away from certain inflammatory foods uh, make sure you can take some dietary supplements like turmeric fish oil uh, garlic. Um, you can do things like boswellia. There are essential oils. There are different things that you can take. Glucosamine, chondroitin. You may say, well, it didn't work. Uh, you can take collagen. It will work. It is literally a nutrient that fits the body and can help you reduce the pain. Now, with the whole um, work with and the studies done on the CBD content, the cannabinoids, which nourish our endo uh, internal endocannabinoid system uh, which was by the way discovered by medical doctors in the 80s that this system is very good to help our nerves to reduce pain and work on pain receptors as well as uh, help us with sleep help us with anxiety attacks etc so it works on both physical ailments as well as neurological problems if you start using that you could get yourself off the opioids and when you look at this, these companies would get sued and maybe pay $120 million, with an M, million dollars in fines, which sounds like a lot for you and me, but for these companies, it was literally, they probably had that cash back in their back pocket. So the Arcos system, the automation of reports and consolidated order system, um, what it did, uh, let me see here, the... Page seven. Good. This, the transactional data kept by Arcos is highly detailed. It includes the name, the DEA registration number, the address, and the business activity of every seller and buyer of a controlled substance in the United States. The database also includes drug codes, transaction dates, and total dosage units, and the grams of narcotics salt there is so much to know about this i hope you get that article you start reading it and learn more about it i'm sorry i'm running out of time it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you uh, i may elaborate again on this in a few weeks uh, doing sweet pea weekend because i don't think i have a guest then but otherwise we got a lot of uh, guests great guests lined up for you um so please uh I hope you tune in again next week, Saturday, for another edition of Gazunta with Jacobus. And I just wish you a wonderful weekend. See you later. Bye-bye. Are you ready to improve your life? It all starts here on Gazunta with Jacobus. Health Talk Radio.